I mean, you know how I kind of like to harp on us singing theology. I had a friend who posted something on Facebook this week in one of our college um, pages, uh, and he made a comment about um, how he likes to sing the, the hymns because there's so much theology in it. And I made the comment, have you checked out some of these new songs that are being written? I mean, just let, let me read those words to you again. Um, then on the third at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. O oh, trample death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. Wow, the angels roar. Remember when the angels came and announced his birth? They were confused. They didn't know what was going on. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. They simply were like, okay, God, that's your plan. We're going to announce it. And now when they see the plan come come to fruition, the angels roar. For Christ the King, oh, praise the name. Praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise his name forevermore. And then this is the one that really catches me, and I love it. Um, He shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. He's coming back, my friends. He's coming back in two forms. He's coming back to catch us up and take us home to be with him. We call that the rapture. That's going to happen. There's no doubt. There's a guarantee. There's lots of guarantees in Scripture that that's going to happen. And when he comes, we won't know it. We won't know the time. We won't know the day. We won't know anything about it except that when he comes in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trump will sound, the dead in Christ will rise. And we will, he, will, he will catch us up in, in, in just a, in a very short period of time. We won't even be able to measure it. We will be in his presence. Oh, man. And then he's coming back. And we're going to come back with him for that second time when he literally comes back to the earth to fulfill all of the unfulfilled promises made to Israel, to sit on the throne of David, to rule and to reign and to execute judgment and justice and bring his kingdom in. Oh, you want to talk about glorious. You want to talk about the glory of God being evident. It will be on that day when he comes back. Um, And that's actually what we're going to focus on this morning. So go ahead and take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. We're going back to uh, 2 Peter. We're going to finish this study up here, not quite today, but we're getting close to the end of 2 Peter. Uh, We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 with verses 1 through 9 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. You know, Peter is writing to talk to and to confront and to set the record straight about those people who don't think and don't believe that Jesus is coming again. Can I tell you this? Jesus, and not because I said so, but because God said so, Jesus is coming again. There is no doubt about it. If you ever doubted the fact that he was coming back, please don't. And after this morning, you will have enough evidence and enough proof to know that Jesus is coming back. So we've made our way through this study in 2 Peter. Um, And one thing as we have been learning from Peter is true. Whether you've 
whether you study chapter 2 of 2 Peter, where there's a strong warning about false teachers, or if you read chapter 1 and are reminded of the importance of being a growing Christian, this one thing is clear. You might say, well, pastor, what is it that's clear? Well, the fact that Peter loves his flock cares for his flock, and, and wants to shepherd his flock, that is the thing that is very clear. So can I tell you this? When I stand up here and I preach about false teachers, it's not because I want to make a point of who they are. It doesn't really matter who they are, except that you need to know who they are. You need to understand, hey, I shouldn't be listening to what they say because they often say things that are not true. Okay? I try not to point out particular religious groups. Sometimes I mention people's names. Um, but it's, again, not to tell you their names, but to make sure that you don't get sucked up into what they are prescribing for you to follow. That's part of pastoral care. That's what Peter was doing when he was writing to set the record straight here. Um, you might say, well, why, what is that? What do you mean, Pastor? I don't understand. Remember the last conversation that Peter had with his Lord face-to-face conversation, took place on a beach. They had been out fishing, because remember, Peter was frustrated, and he said, I'm going fishing. In other words, I'm going back to what I know best, and I, I, you know, all this other stuff, I'm not so sure about it, but I know that I can fish. I'm going fishing. So the rest of the disciples, they go, and they get in boats with them, and they're out there fishing. And then they look on the shore, and they see this fire and they see that somebody's there preparing a meal. And it didn't take them long to figure out who that someone was. It was Jesus. So when Peter realizes who it is, he jumps out of the boat. He doesn't even wait for the boat to get back to shore. He jumps out of the boat, and he runs up to shore, and he, and he sees that it's Jesus. And Jesus asks him a couple questions. You remember what those questions are. He, he says to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? That wasn't just a one-off question. He asked that three times. Peter, do you love me? Each time Peter affirmed his and reaffirmed his love for Jesus, and each time Jesus gave him an instruction, twice the instruction was, Peter, feed my sheep. And then the other time the instruction was, Peter, tend my sheep. You know, feed means just that, means feed my sheep. Not physically feed them, but feed them spiritually. Give them the thing that they need the most. Teach them truth. Make sure that they have all the truth at their disposal so they can learn and they can grow and they become more like Jesus. Tend, however, adds to the responsibility that Jesus gave to Peter at this time. Tend means to exercise complete care over. It's more than just feeding. It's it's to make sure that all of their needs are met. Make sure everything is cared for. Make sure that they're fully protected to the best of your ability. You see, it's the shepherd's responsibility to watch out for wild animals, to deliver the sheep from the deadly attacks of the enemy. Peter here in 2 Peter chapter 3 is watching out for the sheep and he's warning them to be aware of the wolf that desires to devour them. Peter has accepted the challenge to pastor or to tend the flock of, of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here in 2 Peter chapter 3. As we begin chapter 3, we see more and more of Peter's pastoral heart. As God's under-shepherd, Peter has his readers' spiritual well-being in mind. 
He's looking out for them. This should be true of all pastors. They should have the spiritual well-being of God's children at the forefront of their ministry. That's why I've told you before, I, we don't just let anybody stand up here uh, behind our pulpit. Let me just give you one example. You remember when we had the flood, right? And we couldn't meet upstairs for months. Months. Was it close to a year? Well, with COVID in there. Um, so we, we never came back until after COVID. So anyway, it was a long time. But the very first Monday after the flood, um, somebody from another church in town, I won't tell you which one, um, showed up on my door. Are you Pastor Mowers? Yes, I am. Um, I just wanted to let you know, we heard about your flood and the terrible problem that you had. And I wanted to let you know that if, there, if you need a place to meet, you can meet in our building. Wow. That took me back. And we had a deacon's meeting shortly after that. And I said, you know what? I was, I was amazed by their offer. And I, and, I, and I had to really think, should, could we make the same offer to them? Based on our Constitution, no. And you know why? Because our Constitution says that the, we, we can only let people stand up here and preach from our pulpit who preach the truth. So that would disqualify them because I've been in some of their things over there and this is not what happens over there. So as, as difficult as that sounds, that is my responsibility as a shepherd to make sure that this sacred desk, if you will, only has truth coming from it to the best of my ability. That's what Peter's doing here. He's shepherding, he's caring, he's tending, he's defending the flock of God. He's got his staff out. He might have his sword drawn. And, and he's saying, all right, God, with your strength, with your grace, with your wisdom, I will defend the truth of the word of God. Well, Peter's going to get specific here. And he's going to talk about people who are denying the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? And, and we must take that very seriously. Um, let, let's take a look at verse 1, and here we see Peter's purpose described. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, we read this, Beloved, now I write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Okay, Why is Peter writing? He says, I'm writing because I want to stir up your mind. Okay, Peter's going to address a, a subject that is very dear to the hearts of, of many of us. Uh, and that's the coming return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We shall see here that it's near to the heart of God's children throughout the generations as well. Now, before he gets to that well-loved topic, he tells his readers something. He says, I want to stir up your pure mind by way of reminders. Now, when he says stir up, what kind of thoughts come to your mind of stirring up? Um, uh, I'll tell you this. I made barbecue meatballs for after church today. Just before I came upstairs to preach, I meant to get a bottle of water and I forgot it, but just before I came upstairs, I took the lid off the barbecue meatballs. 
Oh, man, does this smell good. And I, you know what I did? I stirred it. I, I went all the way down to the bottom, got all of that barbecue sauces down there and made it go over top of all the meatballs that are there. And I did it like three or four times. Sorry, Ben, I know you wanted meatballs, but, uh, you know, um, maybe, maybe we'll sneak one to you if you're lucky. All right, but all of that sauce and all of that aroma. But you know what? If I didn't go down there and stir it, you know what would have happened? They would have, some of the stuff on the bottom and some of the stuff on the sides would have got scorched and it would have been burned a little bit. Now that's sometimes pretty good, that stuff is. Um, but if it gets too overdone, not so much. So, so that's the idea of stirring. I know that Scott has made some chili. Um, and by the way, he said it's not for the faint of heart. Okay, uh, so in other words, the chili is hot, and not just hot because it's been in a crock pot, but it's got ghost peppers, scorpion peppers in it, okay? So if you're not accustomed to that, and, and you're sensitive to that, um, just beware, okay? Uh, you consider yourself forewarned. And, and I'm sure uh, he's been stirring that just to mix everything up and just so it's, so it's got good flavor spread throughout all of, this, all of this chili that's down there, okay? Because if you don't stir it all up and you just let it sit on top, it, it only seasons a very small portion of the pot. Okay, you got to make sure it's thoroughly mixed. So Peter says, I want to stir up. little different meaning here. It's not just to agitate a little bit like we would do when we're cooking, but it's to awaken from your sleep. You know, we have these things in our houses, and in fact, um, we have these things on our, on our, that we carry around with us. I just woke mine up, see? Okay? Um, the word stir means to awaken, to arouse from sleep. Okay, so in other words, when my computer falls asleep, I, I don't use a mouse, I use a, a pad, and so I touch the pad, actually, actually when I sit down at my desk, and I, thank you Caleb, when I sit down at my desk, I, I don't even have to touch my computer anymore because my watch turns it on, you know, it's, um, but anyway, I have to wake it up, I have to arouse it, and if I don't wake it up, I can't do what I need to do with my computer, right, it's just sitting there with a black screen in front of me to arouse it, to, to bring it back to life, if you will. Peter says, I'm writing to arouse you, to stir your minds. When I go to visit people in the hospital, sometimes, oftentimes I get there, and you know what? They're sound asleep. Sometimes I hear you snoring. If you think you don't snore and I visit you in the hospital, you can ask me and I can tell you if you snore or not. All right, um, and so what I do is I, I, I say to the nurse, I says, can I, so the nurse often will come over and shake you, wake up, wake up, somebody's here to see you. Sometimes I just leave a note, and, and then you find the note after, and then I get in trouble because I didn't wake you up. Anyway, um, wake you up, come, come back to a responsive state so you can be engaged and you can converse and you can figure out what's going on and who's there and all of that kind of stuff. Peter's writing to awaken the believers who have been lulled to sleep by false teachers. Peter's purpose and desire is to bring them back to a state of alertness so they can fend off the false teachers. That's why we spend so much time teaching you the truth here at Calvary Baptist Church. That's why we encourage you not to just come on Sunday mornings, but to come on Sunday nights because there's so much teaching that goes on. 
that if you're not getting that teaching, you're missing out. Not just on hearing Ben or myself lead a Bible study, but you're missing out on the stuff that you need to be able to defend yourself against the false teachers. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much more as you see the day coming. What day? The day where truth will be despised and falseness will be taught in the place of truth. You know what? We're there. We're there. And we need to be taught. And we don't need to hear what people think. We need to hear what God says from the pages of Scripture. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself. It's not because we keep a tally of who comes and how often you come. That's not it. It's because God wants us to know the truth. The truth sets us free, and the truth defends us from the wicked one. That's what Peter's doing. He's stirring up. He's teaching the truth. He wants his readers, he wants the followers of Christ to know when false teaching comes around. We had a supporting church that was out in Colorado. I only went there once. And and it was a jam-packed weekend. But a lot of that weekend was spent with the pastor or whoever was leading, teaching about, not just about false teaching, but teaching what the false teachers teach. And that's not a bad thing, but you know what my intention is? My intention is to give you truth. Truth, 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 truth. I may mention some once in a while what the other people believe. But my intention is to let you know the truth so that when something false comes along, you will catch it just like that. You will know it. You will say, hmm, seems like pastor preached on that or taught on that or Ben said something about that and it's not what I'm hearing on the radio or not what I'm hearing uh, on the TV or not what I'm reading Uh, and you should get red lights and warning flags and all that kind of stuff going off because it's contrary to the truth. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You've heard me tell you before that when you want to figure out what a counterfeit bill looks like, they don't have you study counterfeit bills. When I worked at Olympia, we had a loss prevention guy come in. And he would come in and he would, he would come in actually with fake money. And he would say, hey, tell me what you think about it. One time he brought in a dollar bill. We didn't know it was a dollar bill. Okay? It was a dollar bill that had been bleached and run through a high-tech copier and turned into like a $20 bill. Real paper, real look. But he said, now I want you to do something. I want you to take your, your, your bill and I want you to feel around the president's collar. Can you feel the scales there? Yeah, they don't have scales on a $1 bill. Okay, so if you, feel the do- if you feel a $20 bill or higher and you don't feel the ski- scales, you know what? It's fake. Stay away from it. He, never- he-, he said, I want you to know the truth. Take out your real money and feel it. And you could feel the difference. You could tell the difference between the fake. So when I go, I go shopping, and you know what he also did that day? He took all of our, you know those pens they used to mark your bill with? He took them all and threw them in the garbage. He says, they don't work. Because if you do that on a $1 bill that's been bleached and copied, guess what? 
it's going to come out the way it's supposed to come out because it's the real paper. So when I go in and I, and, I, and I see, I hand somebody a $20 bill or a $50 bill and they hold it up to the light, that's a good thing. But then they, then they get their pen out and they go like this. I says, you know, you need to do more than that. And they look at me. What do you mean? And so I tell them, you need to feel. I never knew that. You see, if you don't know what is true, the fault is going to sneak through. That's what Peter wants us to understand here. He's stirring us up. He's reminding us of the truth. And he says, I'm stirring up your pure minds. Your pure minds. He wants us to make an assessment here. There must be a proper assessment. This, is, this word uh, assessment or stirring up your pure minds, it means to be sun judged. Okay? When you make an assessment, you're sun judging it. Uh, a potter's jug was supposed to be whole without weaknesses or blemishes. If you went to the market and you bought a and you bought a pottery jug, a jug, oftentimes you would hold it up to the sun and see if any of the sun would come through. We used to, uh, when we would go to the markets in South Africa, it was interesting because you would see a guy sometimes uh, pick up one of the broken pieces of a, of a, of a, of a statue or of a, of a, they had these families that they make out of stone and they will take that and they'll, if it's broken, they'll heat it all up and they'll put some wax in there and then they'll put the piece back together and then they'll take some shoe polish and they'll polish it all up nice and, and make it shine and make it buff. And if you're not careful, you can buy a broken piece. So what you do is you take it and you hold it up and you look and see, is, there, is the whole thing polished evenly? Is it all put together nicely? Are there any cracks? Is there anything I need to do? Yeah, it's sun-judged. It's sun-judged. They see the sun has a remarkable way of exposing the faults, the cracks, the errors, the imperfections. It's sun-judged. The sun reveals those spots that are covered up to hide things. Peter reminds his readers that they have been sun-judged. Their minds have been purified by the Holy Spirit. And we need to keep our minds from spot and from blemish. What's the sun that judges our hearts and our minds and keeps us on track? It's the Word of God. It's the living Word of God. We've also seen here that Peter believed his readers were genuine believers and they were striving to grow and become more like Christ. We should have that same desire in our hearts. We should desire to be like Peter's readers, to have pure minds and to be ever growing under the influence of the word of God. So we are rightly dividing the word of truth. Peter wants his purpose to be clearly known to his readers. Verses two through nine, we're gonna read that together as well. So um, take your copy of the scriptures if you would. Stand with me and let's read together. Second Peter chapter three, verses two through nine. Second Peter chapter three, verses two through nine. Read it together with me if you will. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget 
that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thank you, you may sit down. Um, So as we see here, Peter reminds us, he declares, if you will, the reminders that he wants his children, his readers to understand. Peter gives his readers some pertinent reminders. Excuse me, do you appreciate reminders? I think sometimes we like reminders. But I think other times, we don't really like reminders. If we genuinely plan to do something that we want to make sure gets done, but it slips our minds, we appreciate being reminded. Okay? But maybe there's something that you know you should do and you don't really want to do it, and somebody reminds you, you're like, oh, I almost forgot. You could have let me forget, you know, you don't say that, but you know. Um, so, so the idea of being reminded, Peter wants us to be reminded of what is important in the life of the child of God. Now understand this, out of all of the things that are important that Peter could remind his readers of, he reminded them of what? The return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It must be important. It must be significant. It must be something that we need to be aware of. A reminder, I mean, I have some on my phone. I, I don't even, I very, I shouldn't say I don't, very seldom do I put stuff on my calendar. But very, very seldom does a day go by that I don't get a reminder on my calendar. You know why? Because my wife keeps it up to date. I tell my wife, hey, I have a meeting, or I have this, or I have that. The next thing I know, my phone buzzes, and it's on the calendar. She's got something coming up, and she wants me to know about it. She puts it on the calendar, and my phone buzzes. I'm up to date. I'm reminded. I know what's happening. And then as it gets closer to that time, my phone buzzes and says, hey, don't forget. Hey, do this. Hey, make sure that gets done. Hey, take care of that. All right? Uh, we signed up for a free subscription to something. I think it was a, a Sirius XM radio. Three months, it comes to an end. I put a reminder on my calendar so that I will know that before the three months, I have to say, hey, I don't want that anymore. Because if I don't, they're going to start charging me for it. Okay, I just got a reminder. Don't, don't skimp on water. Reminders, they happen. They're good for us. Peter is reminding us. This is what you need to do. Peter wants the flock to remember some very important things that come from the Holy Spirit. These are not Peter's things. These are the Holy Spirit's reminders. And he gives us some timely reminders. First of all, you need to know the source of the reminder. Again, it's not something like the the Lord's table. It's not something that the apostles came up with. It's not something that man came up with. We see here that this is from the very heart of God. It's important for us to know that whatever we are being reminded of is indeed credible. 
Peter tells us the source of his reminders. These reminders are not from unfounded, unreliable sources, but rather they come from those that God inspired to record his word. Remember what we looked at over in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where Peter told us that holy men of God, as they were guided by the Holy Spirit, recorded for us the pages of Scripture. It's this material that Peter gains his reminders from. They're from the heart of God. Let's see what we have here. We have the communication of the prophets. Um, What was much of the content of the prophets? Anybody know? What did they want their readers to know and understand? Any ideas? The day of the Lord. Okay. A lot of what the prophets wrote about, talked about, prophesied about was either the Lord's first coming, which these folks have already experienced in Bethlehem, a babe born of a virgin, wrapped in swaddling clothes, or his second coming, which they are waiting for, they are anticipating. The holy men of God spoke of two things for the most part. They spoke of coming judgment You know, if you don't obey and repent and and turn back to God, you're going to be in trouble. God's going to judge, and God will judge. Make no mistake about it. God may look as though he's holding off his judgment, but he's only doing that because he's patient, and he wants you to come to repentance. He wants you to get things right. He's not holding off because he's trying to sweep it under the rug or hide it. That's not it at all. There will be an account given. So if you don't repent, judgment will come from God. Did God's judgment fall upon the nation of Israel? Anybody remember any times when God's judgment fell on the Israelites? <laughs> you snicker. You know that it did. But you, you say, well, how many times have you heard, God wouldn't do that to me, he loves me. How many times have you heard that? A lot. You know what? That's why he does it, because he loves you. You know, kids, you've heard it, right? I'm only giving you a spanking because I love you. Yeah, right. It doesn't feel like it. No, sometimes the, the punishment, the, 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 the correction doesn't feel good, but it's done in love, or at least it should be. God loves you. He's given you his word so you will know what to do and how to do it right. And when you don't do it right, his Holy Spirit convicts you, pricks your heart and says, hey, get it right. Get into the word, figure out how to fix it. God set Israel aside. He's not working with them anymore right now because of their sinfulness that's their judgment. We've, we know that from the book of Romans. God set Israel aside because of their rebellious disobedience. But he, and, he, and in doing that, you know what? We ought to all say amen, praise the Lord, because he opened the door for you and I by setting aside Israel. He's opened the door for the Gentiles. And scripture tells us, until the full number of the Gentiles comes in, that's you and I. Till all of us come to, to all the number that Jesus, that God appointed in eternity past, come to know Jesus as their Savior, the door is open. When we've all come to know Jesus as our Savior, that door is going to close, the rapture will happen, and then Jesus is coming back to rule on the throne of David like he said he would and fulfill all those promises that were made to Israel. 
That's going to happen. Don't doubt it. Don't forget it. Don't make light of it. Part of the message of the holy prophets was one of judgment for disobedience and rebellion against God. The other thing that these holy prophets wrote about was the second coming of the Lord. Listen to these words from the holy prophet in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. In verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day is the, it shall be the Lord is one, and his name is one. These holy prophets, they love to dwell on the coming of the Lord to establish his kingdom here on the earth. Can I tell you this? Can I remind you this? That Jesus' kingdom on earth is a real kingdom. It's a literal kingdom. It's not in your heart. It's not in your mind. It's not something that's already happened. We're not in it now. It will happen. And when it happens, every eye will see and everyone will know it. And, And you know what? There won't be any mistaking who the Lord is. Scripture scripture tells us, hey, don't fall for those who say he's already come. Don't fall for those who say, I was over at McDonald's and I saw him standing in the line in front of me. Don't fall for that nonsense. It's lies from the pit of hell. Satan wants you to think that Jesus has already come back. You know why? Because then you don't live as you ought to live. What do I have to live for? It's here now. What's the big deal? Nothing so bad's happened yet. I might as well keep on the way I'm going. Don't fall for the lies. They're all away. They're all out there. Don't let it deceive you. The Lord is coming back. He will establish his kingdom. It is important. Because if that's not true, what else did God tell us that's not true? It's true. It will happen. God will keep his word. We also see not only did the holy prophets communicate that to us, but we see the commandments of the apostles of the Lord and of our Lord and Savior. The New Testament is filled with instruction from the apostles and other holy men of how God expects his children to live in this present age. If you think it's about um, if you think about it, what is much of the content of the New Testament? What do they talk about? Okay, listen to this. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament, okay? You can go to your table of contents. It might have the number of chapters in each book. You can add them all up, or you can just believe me. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament. In those 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are 300 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Is it important? Yeah, it is. If in 260 chapters, he mentions it 300 times, you do the math. Even me, I can do that kind of math. It's not hard. More than once a chapter, he talks about the second coming of Christ. It is important. Can I tell you this? When you look at people's websites and you find out what their doctrinal statement is and they skimp on the end times, beware. Beware. God thinks it's important enough to mention it once, more than once a chapter. Not now you're going to go, oh, pastor, this chapter doesn't have it. Of course it doesn't. Not every chapter has it. But over 300 times he talks about the second coming of Christ. 
These commandments could also be related to the new commandment that Jesus gave. And that new commandment is to love one another. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, we read this. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When you love one another, you have the opportunity to tell one another about the coming of the Lord and get your life right, get saved, know Jesus now because you don't want to know him then. That's not when you want to at least first know him. Okay? You, you have to hear this comment from J. Vernon McGee. I mentioned him last week. But here, here, listen to what he says when he compares the Old Testament prophets what they wrote with what the New Testament apostles wrote. He says this. Now, what did the Old Testament prophets write about? They wrote about the coming of Christ to earth to establish his kingdom. What did the New Testament apostles write about? They wrote about Christ coming to take the church out of the world. And then after the great tribulation about his coming to earth to establish his kingdom. Notice that the Old Testament prophets did not write about the church Not one of them never wrote about the church. They wrote only about his coming to earth to establish his kingdom. It was the Lord himself, McGee says, who first revealed that he would be coming for his own. He said, as recorded in John, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go or since I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. John 14, 2 and 3, McGee goes on to say, the place he was going to prepare was not down here on earth. It was not on the other side of the Mount of Olives. If you doubt that, go back and look. It's still a desolate place. Our Lord went back to heaven, and that is where he is preparing a place for us, and he promised to come back for us. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, we are told that we will meet him in the air. And then he says, let me repeat in bold letters, the prophecy in the Old Testament of Christ's coming was to establish his kingdom upon the earth. The prophecy in the New Testament of his coming was first to take his church out of the world and then to come and establish his kingdom upon the earth. Can I tell you this? I have a very dear friend who believes that Jesus came back in 70 AD. No matter how hard I try to convince him, he doesn't listen. He says, oh, you're blind, you're, 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 you, won't believe, you believe what your prophecy, your, your seminary teachers taught you. No, I'm believing what the scriptures say, because they're true. And I ask him, so, so when, when did the Mount of Olives ever split? Because that's what the Bible says. When he comes back, he will touch down on the Mount of Olives, the Mount will split. And you know what's going to happen when the Mount splits? There's not going to be a desert there anymore around the mountain. It's going to be filled with water. It's not going to be a desolate place anymore. It's going to bloom with all kinds of vegetation. You know what? That place is still a desert. That's how I know Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's a lot of other things in Scripture that tells us have to happen before Jesus comes back. Know the truth. He goes on and he talks about the, what is the, what's the substance of the reminders. He reminds us that, first of all, there will be scoffers, the fact of scoffers. What is a scoffer? He or she is one that mocks or belittles the authenticity of the message or the integrity of the messenger. <laughs> My friend calls me a false teacher. 
He calls me a deceiver. He calls me all kinds of things. I don't, he's my friend because I love him. Okay? I actually defriended him on Facebook. All right? But that doesn't mean I don't love him and I don't still pray for him. But he calls me all kinds of names. You know why? Because he doesn't have anything really to rest on. He can't defend what he believes from Scripture. When you bring it up, he said, well, you know, it's this and it's that. No, it's not. You have to do all kinds of mental gymnastics and you have to do all kinds of twisting of Scripture and taking it out of context to get where you are. There are scoffers. Peter says, this is true. The scoffers are coming. In reality, scoffers deny Jesus Christ and the promise of his return for his church followed by his return to establish his kingdom on earth. These scoffers are characterized by those that follow their own evil desires. Kenneth Gangle says this, arrogant, snobbery, and disdain for the idea of coming judgment leads to sexual immorality. Whew. It's not happening in a vacuum, my friends. You can't say, I don't believe this in Scripture and then not have it affect everything else you live by. Whew. MacArthur adds that these false teachers developed an eschatology, that's end times theology, developed an eschatology that allowed them to practice their false teaching. People often say that one's eschatology is not that important. Oh, man. Eschatology affects almost every other doctrine in Scripture. That's why it's important. You can't cheap on eschatology. You have to have it right. It's the foundation almost of the doctrines of the New Testament. If you do not have the right eschatology, then Jesus, the God has not told us the truth in the Old Testament. That's how important eschatology is. He says they particularly mock the second coming of Jesus Christ because they want to pursue impure sexual pleasure without consequences or without having to face divine retribution. They want an eschatology that fits their conduct. Whoa, that's heavy. That's heavy. They are here. The fact of scoffers. And now he goes on, he talks about the fabrication of the scoffers. They've made things up. Where is the promise of his coming, they ask. Or to put it in today's vernacular, he said he was coming. Look at how long it's been. He hasn't come yet. Why do you think he's still going to come? Because he said so. Do you need any other reason? Not really. He said so. They also make it up, they say this, for since the fathers fell asleep, that's the, that's the, you know, Peter's a Jew, so since the Jewish fathers, you know, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they are from the beginning of creation. Really? You really think that's true? Take a look around. I mean, I tell people sometimes, if I could snap my fingers and bring my grandfather back from the dead, he wouldn't know what in the world's going on. He died in the 80s. If I brought him back in 2023, he'd shake his head. He'd say, what happened to our country? What happened to our world? What is going on? Things are not the way they've always been. The implication here of the scoffers is that if we go all the way back to Adam, to the very beginning of creation, God has not intervened in human history in such a drastic way. Why do you think he will now? Really? Really? You see, 
<laughs> I, I like history. It was one of my favorite subjects in school. But you see, if you, if you don't look at history the right way, or if you rewrite history, like what is happening in our world today, people, you don't, if you pick up a history book that was written today and compare it to one that was written when I was in college, it's not the same. And it's not just because they have updated it, but they've left out a lot of things. They've rewritten some things to make history look different than what it really is. Can I tell you this? A lot of things have changed since the fathers that Peter is writing about fell asleep or went to sleep. So he he says they've made up history to suit themselves. And then he talks about the forgetfulness of the scoffers. He goes hand in hand. Uh, They forgot these things or they made these things up and they've made it up so they now start to believe it themselves. They believe the lie that they've perpetrated themselves and they forgot what the truth is. Peter does a bit of scoffing himself here. He said, we could, or we could say he scoffs the scoffers. The scoffers here have selective memory. They choose to remember what they want to remember, and they choose to remember it the way they want to remember it. Here's some, he gives some examples. We read them. They willfully forget the creation of Almighty God. You know we have Christians who don't believe in creation anymore? in the six literal days of creation, and then the seventh day was a day of rest? Well, yeah, but they still call themselves Christians. If they don't believe that, what gives them the right to believe anything else in Scripture? They willfully forget creation. Contrary to the false teachers, God in six days miraculously, marvelously spoke into existence the world and all that's in it. We just recently went through the seven seas of history and spent quite a bit of time talking about creation. God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke them into existence, literally spoke them. I love what Louis Giglio says. He he said, God said, let there be light, and out of his mouth, light came flying at whatever the speed of light is, 1.86 whatever per second. Like you would never, I mean, light, whoa. And it was there. The stars came blazing into existence. The moon was there. God spoke it into existence. It took him that long. Let there be light. And it was there. They willfully forget that God destroyed the world that existed at the time of Noah because of the wickedness of mankind. They say God hasn't intervened in history. Did you forget the flood? How could you forget it? Everybody was wiped out except for eight people. And then God started all over again. And he said, don't be more trouble than you're worth. Live for me, honor me, serve me, worship me, and things will be fine. Don't, well, then you see the Tower of Babel. (laughs) They forgot that too. What happened when God came down? I would have... I mean, I love the day in which we live, but I would have loved to have been alive just for that woman. Like, if you could get in a time machine and go back to the Tower of Babel. Can I have a hammer? What'd you say? I said I want a hammer. What'd you say? People say God doesn't have a sense of humor. You know what they did with the hammer, probably? Hit him upside the head. All I wanted was a hammer and you couldn't even give it to me. I don't understand what you're saying. What are you saying? I don't know. God never came down. You better believe when God comes down, something happens. 
God came down. He, he, he destroyed the earth. He then brought mankind back in the ark. And, and he said, okay, it's been cleansed. It's been purged. Start new. Start over. They forgot it. They, will, they willfully forget the world we live in now is preserved by the same word of God. You love follow the science, right? Follow the science, follow the science. The science is so clear that there was a creator. The science is so clear that this creator keeps all things together, like Colossians says. He's the superglue, if you will, that holds the world together. They forget that. They choose not to believe it. At the appointed time, the time determined by the sovereign God, after all the necessary prophesied things came to pass, God will again judge this world. And Peter says he'll judge it with fire this time. Why? Because he promised not to do it with a flood again. So he's going to do it with fire. Now what's that fire going to look like? I don't know. It could look like a nuclear holocaust. Could be lots of ways that God decides to end this world in fire. But can I tell you this? I'm glad that as a born again believer, we are not to be on this old earth when that judgment comes. Peter says the day of judgment is for the ungodly. Can I tell you this? We celebrated communion this morning. When Jesus hung on the cross, and he took your sins and my sins on his body, the sins of mankind, and the world became dark at three o'clock in the afternoon. It shouldn't have been dark. All of the world became dark. You know why? Because God the Father turned his back on God the Son. He couldn't look on his Son because his Son bore your sins and my sins, the sins of mankind. And Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why he forsook him? Because at that moment in time, he was bearing the wrath of God in his body for you and I. If I say that I'm going to be here during the time when God pours his wrath out on the church, i.e. the tribulation period, I'm making God a liar. He said it's for ungodly men. Not for godly men, not those who have been bought, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, brought back into a right relationship with him. You and I will not, praise God, thank you Jesus, face the wrath of God. Because we couldn't. And it's the wrath of God that will destroy this world by fire. Heavy stuff, huh? Well, there's some good news. There's some securities that Christians must not forget. Peter wants Christians to remember one thing above everything else. I think what Peter wants us to remember and never forget is that if God says he will do something, he will bring it to pass. If God says he's going to make it happen, he will make it happen. That's why I can stand up here and preach to you and you can go out and you can tell all of your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones that you can have eternal life. Why? Because God said so. Not because I said so. I didn't make it up. God said so. If we want to have eternal life, we have to believe the rest of the stuff in Scripture that goes along with the promises of God. We can't pick and choose what we want. God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. In this particular context, Peter wants his readers to realize that the day of the Lord is coming. It is future. It will happen. 
regardless of their mocking. Mocking of the scoffers will not prevent it or even delay it. Peter says, hey, listen to this. Remember this one thing. One day is as a thousand years with God. Peter's reminding us that God does not see time the way man sees time. What may seem like a long time to man is in reality to God just a short period of time. One day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. Peter also wants us to know this. This should bring security to us. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. God made a promise. He's going to keep that promise. Even though it seems like it's been a long time, the Lord in his time will keep his promises. The prophet Habakkuk reminded the Israelites about God's faithfulness and his promise when he wrote these words in chapter 2, verse 3. For the vision is, not, is, is yet for an appointed time. What was that vision about the end times? It's for yet for an appointed time. But at the end, it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry long. For with God, one day is as a thousand years. But know this, God is long-suffering. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter reminds us that God is indeed a patient God. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for being patient. This was recorded by both the holy prophets and the apostles. He gives plenty of time for repentance. Now, don't mistake this. Don't mistake God's patience as impotence. Because he's not impotent in any way. Peter wants his readers and us today to realize exactly what it is. It's a demonstration of, yes, are you ready for this? It's a demonstration of his grace. That's why we sing amazing grace. To God be the glory. Peter wants his readers to know about God's grace. Grace, excuse me. He patiently waits for those he has chosen to be part of the redeemed family to come to God and to respond to his call in their lives. I think the King James Study Bible sums this up very nicely. It says, this text, First Peter, or 2 Peter 3, this text does not teach that God actually decrees that all will be saved. In other words, universalism. The reference here is not to God's decree, but to his desire. Obviously, everyone that a sovereign God decrees, everything that a sovereign God decrees will occur. Here, Peter is describing the sovereign God's desire that all people would turn to him and turn away from the unprofitable, sinful lives they're living. This morning, we've seen the Apostle Peter give us a timely reminder. And that reminder is necessary because they're going to be people who deny that Jesus is who he claims to be. Don't follow them. Don't pay attention to them. They deny his return so they can live in whatever way that suits them. Peter wants the followers of Christ to know that when God makes a promise, he will keep a promise. The return of Christ is real. It has not happened, but it will happen. When the Father says it is time, He will call his bride together. He will take us home to be with him for a thousand years. During that, uh, he'll take us home to be with him during that tribulation period. He will pour out his wrath upon the earth. And then after the marriage supper of the lamb, you think you've been to some nice wedding ceremonies? You ain't seen nothing yet. That marriage supper of the lamb. 
At, during that seven-year tribulation period, we will, have, we will be married to Christ. There will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. There's nothing funny about it. It's just the fulfillment of the promise to be God's people. Okay? And when we've been married to the king, God is going to say, now's the time. Go judge the earth. And during that thousand years, Jesus is going to rule from the throne of David. We will rule with him as his bride having come back with him. Thousand year period. And then you know what happens after that thousand years? Eternity begins. Oh, what a glorious time that's going to be. Everything that God said would happen will happen just like he said. Why? Because he is the sovereign one. Peter wants to make sure that believers do not become complacent or think that there has been no change in plans or think that there's been a change in plans like the false teachers have said, God, can I tell you this? And I, and I hope I hear a resounding amen. God is still in control and his will will be done. Amen. No one and nothing can prevent that from happening. That's Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Heavenly Father, oh... Our hearts are encouraged. So much promise in your word. Today we looked at the promise of the return of your son to rule on the throne of David, to fulfill all of the promises to Israel that you made in the Old Testament, those promises that have not yet been fulfilled. What a glorious day that will be. We're looking forward to being part of that. We're looking forward to the return of Jesus. We'll rule with him. We'll reign with him. We'll worship him. We'll observe his omnipotence. We'll observe his omniscience. We'll observe uh, just how amazing he really is. We'll see it with our own eyes. What a glorious time that's going to be. But Father, we're waiting for the time that you will catch us up to be with you for all of eternity as well for the rapture of the church, where we will go through the judgment seat of Christ. You will wipe away our tears. We'll become the bride, and we will have all of our joys fulfilled. Glorious thought that is. But Father, we ask that until then, you would help us to be faithful, help us to be students of the truth, help us to know the truth of the word of God, help us to be Individuals who are eager to learn more and more and more every time we have the opportunity. And Father, we ask that you would bless our learning times as a church, as we, as we study God's word together at the different times. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to grow. To grow in our knowledge of the word, but then to grow in our likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.